fighting rages on across Ukraine as both Kyiv and Moscow claim to have made advances. According to Andriy Kovalev, 20 combat clashes occurred between the defense forces of Ukraine and the Russian army on August 16th. Plus, the challenges of using Russia's frozen assets to pay for damages in Ukraine. This issue is a work in progress. There is not yet a consensus in the United States, in the European Union, in the UK, that there is a watertight legal framework. And later in the program, Despite Russia's renewed attacks on the Odessa region, its residents aren't letting that stop them from enjoying the Black Sea. Today is Thursday, August 17th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening. I'm Steve Miller in Washington. The Ukrainian military on Thursday claimed more success in its counteroffensive against Russian forces on the southeastern front. What you hear is video that's been shared with the media. Ukraine has shared this footage of the 100th Territorial Defense Brigade soldiers running into position. And then, firing a mortar. Joining us now from Warsaw, Poland via WhatsApp with more details is Lesia Bakaletz. Lesia, where I'd like to begin today is what can you share about these announcements that Ukraine is making, that it's making advancements on its counteroffensive in the southeastern area of the country? Uh, Steve, yesterday Ukraine army liberated the village Urozhaina in Donetsk region, and today the army advances to the south of the village. This was confirmed by the spokesman of the general staff, Andriy Kovalev, at the daily briefing. The general staff also notes that the defense force of Ukraine continued to conduct an offensive operation in the Bakhmut direction. Of the, Donetsk, of the Donetsk region, as well as in the Melitopol and Berdyansk directions in the Zaporizhia region. Uh, according to Andriy Kovalev, 20 combat clashes occurred between the defense forces of Ukraine and the Russian army on August 16th. Uh, the Ukrainian army also destroyed uh, two Russian uh, KA-52 helicopters. Uh, the Air Force of Ukraine reports this. You know, I'm going to circle back to Donetsk in just a moment, but before we get there, I also want to ask you about the Kharkiv region. Uh, I understand there's additional fighting taking place in that area as well. Uh, yes, uh, as the governor of the Kharkiv region uh, told uh, in his telegram, uh, Alexei Negubov, uh, shelling began uh, in the morning uh, around 7 o'clock local time. Uh, the Russian army shot several villages. One woman was killed. Another was wounded by shrapnel. Medics assisted her on the spot. Also, according to the governor, uh, private houses and civil infrastructure were damaged. And uh, as, as I mentioned, the Donetsk region earlier, you, you were sharing information about Ukraine's activities in the area. But Russia is also saying that it's making advances in the Donetsk region as well. What can you share about how Ukraine is responding to, to those assessments? 
So the Ukrainian uh, the Ukrainian uh, armed forces do not comment uh, any Russian statements uh, about uh, uh, the foreign techniques destroyed or some their advances. Uh, but Ukrainian army does recognize the attempt of the Russian army to storm back the liberated village of uh, Urajayne. Colonel of the National Guard of Ukraine, Mykola Urshalovich, stated this in the briefing today. According to him, the counterattack of the Russians are not successful. The units of the National Guard carried out the cleaning and the mining of the liberated village. Also, the Russian army is withdrawing units that fought north and south of Ukraine to the Bakhmut direction, that is, Deputy Commander of the 3rd Assault Brigade, Maxim Zhorin, told Radio Liberty. Lesia Bekelets reports for VOA from Warsaw, Poland. Lesia, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. NATO Chief Jens Stoltenberg said on Thursday that it's up to Ukraine to decide when the conditions are right to join any negotiations following the Russian invasion, emphasizing the alliance's unchanged stance after comments this week by a senior colleague. Stoltenberg said, quote, It is the Ukrainians, and only the Ukrainians, who can decide when there are conditions in place for negotiations, and who can decide at the negotiating table what is an acceptable solution. End quote. Stoltenberg added that NATO's role was to support Ukraine. The statement followed remarks by Stoltenberg's chief of staff at NATO, Stane Jensen, who on Tuesday said Ukraine may end up having to give up territory to Ukraine as part of a deal to end the war. Jensen subsequently said he regretted the remarks. NATO, at its summit last month, said it will extend an invitation to Ukraine to join the military alliance when members agree and conditions are met, and that the country has the right to choose its own path independently of Russia. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has said that while the outcome of the July NATO summit was good, it would have been ideal if Kyiv had received an outright invitation to join the Western Military Alliance. Ukraine's security service released footage on Thursday showing waterborne drones manufactured in Ukraine. The so-called Sea Baby experimental sea surface drones are seen being sailed across an expanse of water. They look like small, gray-painted camouflage speedboats. And rather than having a seat for a driver, the watercraft has equipment on its surface. No information on when or where the footage was filmed has been released, and according to Ukraine's security service head, Vesel Maluk, the development of drones started soon after the Russian invasion. Maluk said that the drones have been used in attacks against the Crimean Bridge, the Russian Navy landing ship Olengorky Grinek, and a tanker. An organization in Ukraine, Modern Sight, is helping former soldiers who lost their vision in combat against Russia to reclaim their sense of autonomy. From the Associated Press, 
Charles de la Desma has more. Along a bustling street in a western Ukrainian city, veteran Denis Abdulin takes his first independent strides since he was severely wounded and blinded while fighting invading Russian troops more than a year ago. He says, it hit my head and the flash was bright. It seemed to me that fire flew out of my eyes. So I immediately realized that I was left without eyes. The group Modern Sight held its first rehabilitation camp in 2019 and has organized around 10 more since then. Abdulin adds, everyone pays their price for freedom in Ukraine. He'd spent months confined to a hospital bed and rarely takes off his dark shades. I'm Charles Duladesma. A Russian court on Thursday imposed a $32,000 fine on Google for failing to delete allegedly false information about the conflict in Ukraine. The move by a magistrate's court follows similar actions in early August against Apple and the Wikimedia Foundation that hosts Wikipedia. According to Russian news reports, the court found that the YouTube video service, which is owned by Google, was guilty of not deleting videos with, quote, incorrect information about the conflict. Now, that's something that Russia characterizes as a special military operation. Google was also found guilty of not removing videos that suggested ways of gaining entry to facilities that are not open to minors, news agencies said, without specifying what kind of facilities were involved. In Russia, a magistrate's court typically handles administrative violations and low-level criminal cases. Since sending troops into Ukraine in February of 2022, Russia has enacted an array of measures to punish any criticism or questioning of the military campaign. Some critics have received severe punishments, however. Opposition figure Vladimir Karamurza was sentenced this year to 25 years in prison for treason, stemming from speeches he made against Russia's actions in Ukraine. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Steve Miller. The United States government and its allies are facing increasing pressure to use approximately $300 billion in Russian central bank assets that they froze not long after Moscow's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. The majority of the money, some $200 million, is frozen in European accounts. These governments have also seized tens of billions of dollars in assets belonging to Russian oligarchs and private entities. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said that the European Union will present an outline of how it intends to use the proceeds for Ukraine's post-conflict recovery efforts. Lawmakers in the United States have also recently introduced bills that would grant President Joe Biden the authority to confiscate. Russian assets frozen within the country and allocate them to Ukraine. To shed light on this complex issue and its implications for Western policymakers, VOA's Kim Lewis spoke with Charles Kupchin, Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and Professor of International Affairs at Georgetown University in the Walsh School of Foreign Service and Department of Government. 
He first explained why this is a pressing issue for Western allies. Well, even though the fighting continues and the destruction of Ukraine's infrastructure continues, it's important to begin to try to put together the funding needed to get Ukraine back up on its feet and to look for the sources of funding to rebuild the country. And we're talking about a very substantial amount of money. The bill is already close to 500 billion. It may well be closer to a trillion by the time the fighting ends. And I think there is a sense that Russia morally and politically should be the one to contribute a substantial amount of the money for the reparations. And given that it is unlikely to do so voluntarily, that's why a conversation continues about perhaps using the 300 plus billion in frozen assets that uh, the United States, European countries, Japan, other G7 countries are now holding. Most of Russia's frozen assets are in European countries, I understand. So will the EU be working with the United States on how to use these proceeds? Well, I, I think that there are two important conditions that need to be met. One is to create a strong legal framework for using these frozen assets to rebuild Ukraine. And that legal framework is controversial. It has yet to be agreed upon. And the second is to make sure that there is a consensus between the United States and Europe and, in fact, within the G7 to go forward, because I think one of the strong suits of NATO, of transatlantic cooperation, is that the United States and its European allies have remained in lockstep. This issue is a work in progress. There is not yet a consensus in the United States, in the European Union, in the UK, that there is a watertight legal framework to proceed with the expenditure of Russia's frozen assets for reparations. So this is a conversation that is continuing. And given this need for a consensus, what are some of the biggest issues Western governments will have to navigate in the beginning stages of looking at these assets? You know, I think the, the biggest issue is to make sure that there is a strong legal framework for proceeding. And that's because one of the strong talking points of the West when it comes to supporting Ukraine and helping it defend itself is that the West is defending a rules-based international system. And as a consequence, it needs to be able to argue that the use of Russia's frozen assets is consistent with the maintenance of that rules-based international system and that there is a strong domestic as well as international framework for proceeding. As of yet, that legal framework has yet to be agreed upon. And then there are a couple other issues in play. One is, would the use of these frozen assets set a precedent that would encourage other countries not to hold their own assets in either euros or dollars? Could this weaken the strength of the dollar in the international system? And a second concern is the precedent that could be set. Would a signal be sent to other countries around the world that it's okay to start freezing and impounding the assets, the sovereign assets of other countries? So there's a broader legal conversation that's taking place as well as the question of what precedents might be set. 
Yes, that's a really good point. And also, you mentioned, you know, possible financial risk for these countries doing this. So is it a huge financial risk? I mean, what type of effects could we possibly be looking at? I think that the financial risks are relatively limited if one focuses on the question of countries no longer coming to the United States with their reserve assets. The dollar has proved remarkably strong over the last several decades. Many analysts were predicting that the euro, the Chinese renminbi, other currencies would emerge to rival the dollar. That hasn't really happened. And I don't think that a use of Russia's frozen assets would undermine the strength of the dollar. For me, the biggest concern is the broader rules-based system to make sure that if the U.S. and its allies move down this road, they can make the case in the world of, of public opinion that this is a legally justified move. Because the bottom line here is that even though in the U.S., in Europe, there is a very strong sense of the need to support Ukraine and hold Russia accountable for war crimes and for reparations, much of the rest of the world is sitting on the fence. Most developing countries, what we call the global south, is sitting on the fence, not clearly choosing sides. And as a consequence, I think the West needs to be careful to make sure that if it proceeds down this road, it is able to make the case to Latin America, Africa, the Middle East, South Asia, Southeast Asia, that this is a move that is consistent with international law and that this strengthens the rules-based system. It doesn't weaken it. Looking at this from a historical perspective, can the Western governments learn from, for example, U.S. Presidents Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush in their handling of Iranian government assets in 1981 and Iraqi funds in 1992? Well, there certainly are precedents. You mentioned two important ones, the Iranian assets and Iraqi assets. I think each case needs to be looked at individually. The legal scholars who are examining this question of using Russia's frozen assets for reparations are using both of those two historical cases as they think through the complications, the pros and the cons of of proceeding. As I said, even though there is a political desire on both sides of the Atlantic to move down this road, neither the American government nor the European Commission nor individual European countries have yet arrived into the comfort zone to proceed. And that's why I think this is a, a conversation that will continue and we'll have to wait and see what decisions are made. There is a proposal that I've seen floating out there to at least use the profits from these Russian assets uh, to support Ukraine. So that may be an alternative. It's not anywhere near the amount of money that we're talking about, 300 plus billion, if you include frozen assets from sanctioned oligarchs. But it is one way forward if there isn't a legal consensus or political consensus to proceed with the use of the core assets themselves. That's Charles Kupchen, Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, as well as Professor of International Affairs at Georgetown University. He was speaking with my colleague, Kim Lewis. 
And this week, we've been sharing an interview conducted by VOA Eastern Europe Bureau Chief Miroslava Gengadze with the head of state border guard services in Lithuania, Rustamas Luberius. That was recorded in Vilnius, Lithuania. Today, we present that final section of their conversation. And one more question about Suvalki. Yeah. Uh, that uh, little strip of land between Russia and Belarus and in the middle, um, you, um, uh, what kind of uh, challenges are there right now? Uh, well, and do you anticipate any... any again, uh, I don't really believe that, uh, uh, at least in the short-term perspective, um, uh, Russia or Belarus uh, would be able uh, to uh, to open the open conflict with NATO. Um, well, that might be a long-term uh, process, and we have some time to be to be prepared. And what's going on right now in our region, um, while presence of uh, the Allied forces, uh, those discussions uh, during uh, Vilnius NATO summit and uh, additional resources to be deployed uh, in the eastern flank of the NATO shows that uh, there are strong understanding uh, of of the challenges we have at the border uh, with Russian Federation and Belarus. Um, and those efforts, uh, well, I think they they are, uh, uh, they are uh, well in in the very 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 right direction. Rustamus Luberius is the head of the State Border Guard Service of Lithuania, and he was speaking to Miroslava Gangadze, VOA's Eastern Europe bureau chief. <laughs> Authorities in Odessa, which is Ukraine's largest port city on the Black Sea, have officially opened several beaches to swimming for the first time since the start of the Russian invasion, though they banned bathing during air alerts. Odessa Governor Oleg Kipper said on the Telegram messaging app that the decision to open beaches was made jointly by the civilian and military administrations of Odessa. Yevon is a 20-year-old journalism student from Mykolaiv, and he was speaking with Reuters News about finally having the chance to swim and switch his brain off a little bit from having to think about the war. He also added that he doesn't think that the shelling his city received was covered enough by the news, and that his school doesn't exist anymore. Russia invaded Ukraine in February of 22, and Odessa, its largest port and naval base, has been repeatedly attacked with missiles and drones, and the sea was littered with hundreds of sea mines. For the safety of residents after the incidents of mines exploding on the beaches, the coast was closed. Alexander is a lifeguard, and he was speaking with Reuters, saying that an anti-mine net was placed between two piers, Storms may push shallow water mines up to the surface and they'll float even with the explosives inside. He adds that while these are anti-ship and anti-boat mines, the net will stop them and the mines will be visible from the shore. And if the mines are seen, emergency workers will be notified and then they'll come to handle the situation. Odessa Governor Ole Kepper also said that the beaches would stay open between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. 
Well, that's going to do it for us today. Be sure to stay up to date with the latest developments, not only in Ukraine, but on news and events from around the world. You can do so 24 hours a day at voanews.com. On behalf of everyone at VOA, we thank you very much for listening. And until next time, I'm VOA's Steve Miller. Be well, be safe, and good night. This is the voice of America. Washington, bam, 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 zip, D.C.